This podcast contains material that is intended for mature audiences and may not be suitable for all listeners. Enjoy. It's like a sample song like nuts. I don't want to get on the bandwagon. I'll burn that wagon down and join the band. Traveling troubadours terrorizing street corners just to try to get some supper in our hands. Now I waited all my life to get this off my chest Green bloody murder until someone understands That it ain't about the money, the drugs, or the women I make this noise just because I can And we'll all join in To that original sin So let's get rowdy and reckless Let's get rowdy and reckless Let's get rowdy and reckless Just for that Hello and welcome back to yet another edition of Old Man Strength, a podcast of the Tailgate Society. I am Tim Johnson, joined as always by Chris Shipley. Chris, how are we doing today? We're doing pretty good, other than the heat and, and the activities this week. It's, it's, it's a busy week for me. Uh, yes, even up here in Minnesota, it has gone from winter to summer with about 30 seconds of spring in between. Uh, it has not necessarily been pleasant, but you know what? After six plus months without 70 degree days, I will take it. I will happily sit outside and be miserable on a patio than being stuck inside. Yeah, there's you're not allowed to complain about the heat after, after <laughs> everybody complained about how cold it was. I don't want to see anybody complaining about the heat. Uh, I got plenty of sun on Saturday when I was up on campus taking graduation pictures of Caitlin. So uh, I've already got my base tan going. I'm good to go. Uh, base tan okay yes, or, yeah right. i don't, or I don't burn, whichever yeah i was gonna say yeah. as a as a pasty blonde white guy i don't really do that i just kind of get a, a nice pink uh patina throughout the summer but um i get it, I get it. <laughs> well good i'm sure caitlin is very very excited for graduation yeah we uh we even i made her walk across the zodiac uh one last <laughs> one time so uh, that was good got a picture of that so I wonder if our guest has ever walked over the Zodiac. That's that's the first question I'd like to ask. <laughs> well, why don't we go and jump right in? I'm really excited uh, for this guest. Once again, Chris, you have found us an amazing guest to talk to, uh, the all-time bucket list guest here. So, Chris, why don't you go and introduce who we are going to be talking to today? Well, uh, he was kind enough to answer a random email from, a, from an alum uh, to ask him to come on. So, Jamie Pollard, Athletic Director of Iowa State University. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Tim, for inviting me on. Yeah, so the, the, the true question is, is have you ever walked across the Zodiac? I have not. I've always walked around it. Smart man. <laughs> Smart man. How many years I, of bad luck do you get by walking across? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was going to say. It's, I, a, it's an exam, but I, I figured at that point I was, I'm good to go. I'm not taking any more exams unless it's a driver's test. So, <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, hey, um, uh, for what you do, Jamie, I'm not a superstitious man at all, but I would not take any chances. Uh, well, I'd be more minutes. concerned some student would film me going across it <laughs> and I would end up on social media and I'd be ostracized from Cyclone fans. Right. No one would, everybody would complain about it and no one would ever admit that they ever did it. So, Chris, yeah. I actually appreciate your honesty. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, Caitlin walked over it her freshman year. I'll never forget the time she called me. She was there like a week. She's like, Dad, I, I walked across the Zodiac, but it's okay because I found a penny and I threw it in the fountain. 
And I said, well, was it a, a penny from the year you were birth, you were born? You know, just to add a little more anxiety to her on her first year of school. <laughs> and she was like, no, is that really actually a thing? And I, yeah, I let her think that for a good week before I, I clued her in that I made that up. So, <laughs> so Jamie, you are, is this uh, your 17th year uh, at Iowa State? Is that, is that correct? Somewhere around there? Yes, sir. Feels like yesterday, but it's totaled up to 17. Wow. Wow. Um, I, you know, I think, uh, <laughs> I think there's an awful lot that you can, you can certainly hang your hat on over those 17 years, but uh, you know, as someone who, who, graduated 20 some years ago. Um, it's been a lot of fun to see uh, how much the program, the college, everything has changed over that time. And as someone who doesn't make it back there nearly as often as I would like, um, boy, the the university over the last 17 years just feels like, like um, you know, a, a lot is, is the same, but a lot has changed as well. Well, you're right. A lot has changed physically. Our infrastructure and facilities have looked nothing like they did back, at least in 2005, when I first set foot on campus the first time. But there's also things that haven't changed, and that is the foundation of who our people are. And we may have more people that are in the stadium and more people that follow what's going on with Cyclone Athletics, but the core of what they believe and how they treat people and how we treat people. I, I don't believe has changed and we've worked hard to not let that change. We've asked um, previous guests, um, Iowa state grads, whether it was, or, or people that have worked there, Dan McCarney, Marcus Pfizer, we've asked them this question. When you visited Iowa state in your process of becoming an athletic director there, what drew you or what, what kind of cinched it for you as far as, wanting to stick with Iowa State and come here? Well, for me, beyond the obvious of you wanted to be a director of athletics and lead your own program, right? That's what was the job. But but why Iowa State? I always felt that it's really important that it isn't just a job. It's a job that is the right fit. And for me back then, what attracted me to Iowa State were multiple things. First, I wanted to be at an athletics program that was in a big-time conference that had the opportunity to compete at the highest level. Number two, though, I wanted to be at a program that I I knew deep down I was a builder, not a maintainer. And so I felt like there was still so many firsts that Iowa State could experience. And I wanted to be part of helping people get to have those experiences. And then on a personal level, having a college town, being in the Midwest, I knew that's where I fit. I didn't fit in a big urban environment and I'd lived on the East Coast. I'd lived in you know, St. Louis. I just felt like Ames, Iowa was really who I was as a person. And so it was going to be really great for my family. And so when I look back over those 17 years, so many of those things really came true and are part of the reason I'm still here 17 years later. So you, you mentioned you mentioned the East Coast, you mentioned St. Louis. I wonder if you could take just a, a, a brief second to kind of tell our listeners a little bit of your story before Iowa State, because I think a lot of people are familiar with your time over the last 17 years, but I don't know if as many people understand uh, the journey to get here. Well, I was a first-generation college student. Actually, 
my five siblings, I was the baby and only two of us graduated from high school. My oldest sister wow. got in trouble with the law. My brother had spina bifida and unfortunately passed away at a young age. And my other sister got pregnant. And so those three never even made it out of high school. So my older sister or sister just ahead of me, she graduated from high school, but didn't go to college. So I was first generation. I was a Pell Grant recipient. The only reason I really went to school was I was not ready to stop being a student athlete. So, um, and at that time, I had no idea that I would end up working in college athletics. I went to college and ran track and cross country. My team captain on our first team was an accounting major, and he seemed like a pretty neat dude. So I ended up being an accounting major. <laughs> my first job out of college in Milwaukee and two years into it, it just wasn't for me. And so I had the opportunity, my track coach had become the athletics director. So I went back and met with him and he introduced me to the world of college athletics. I landed my first job as the athletic business manager at St. Louis University and worked there for five years, met my wife there. And then the athletics director at St. Louis got the AD's job at Maryland. And we moved out to the University of Maryland and had our first two children and were there for four years. And then I was fortunate to get the opportunity to come back to Wisconsin to work for Pat Richter as the CFO in the athletics department. And then eventually got to be the deputy athletics director working for Coach Alvarez. And then a gentleman named Greg Joffrey, who was the provost at the University of Maryland when I was at Maryland, became the president at Iowa State. And that connection was the reason that I ended up in Eames, Iowa. So, um, and 17 years later, here I am, still here. You know, that's a really neat story. Chris and I talked a couple weeks ago about how so much of finding a job or what your career path is, you know, we teach all these kids interview skills and those things, and they're important. Um, but the story you're telling is it's it was as much about like the people that you you met, the relationships that you made, the network that you built and kind of the importance uh, of that, uh, certainly. And, and I think that's a skill that uh, not only lended itself well to helping you on the course of your career, but continues to help you in, in your role today. Absolutely. I always love telling this story to a lot of our younger staff that are always aspirational and trying to find their way to get, you know, in the, the, the eye of the athletics director, so to speak. So I was blessed to work for Debbie Yao at St. Louis and at the University of Maryland. And I was a right-hand person. And so you were in on everything. And I learned so much at a young age. And I owe so much of my career to her. But at that time, we were just starting to have children. And the East Coast really wasn't where we felt we fit. And so I got the opportunity to come back to the University of Wisconsin. But it was cultural shock, even though it was my home, because I walked into an established athletics program that had six senior executives, all of which were way older than me. And suddenly, instead of being the voice to the athletics director, I was like one of six voices to the athletics director. And it really felt like you know, he who was in the office last got his way. And there were a lot of silos. And although we all got along, it just it, it was frustrating for me because it wasn't what I had experienced throughout my whole career working as the right hand of the athletics director. But I just went about my business and did what I thought was I was supposed to do. And we had good success and things seemed fine. And then Pat Richter announced he was retiring and Barry Alvarez became the AD slash football coach. And 
Coach Alvarez called me to his office and I really hadn't interacted with him much at that point in time. I mean, he was the football coach. I was the business guy. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I'd be his deputy athletics director. And it just, I, you know, I was um, stunned, but I asked him, I said, why me? Why me? And he said two things. Number one, I've watched you for the last five years and I just believe you're really good at what you do. And number two, you're the only one that didn't come ask me. <laughs> and I say that second part because it just, it hit me. You know, I, I sat there and thought the five others all, and he goes, yeah, every single one of them came to me and said, let me be your guy. And he goes, you were the only one that didn't. And he said that mattered to me because I wanted somebody that was working for the good of the organization, not just for themselves. And that just left such an impression on me that my work did the talking, not my talking doing the talking. And I think in this day and age with social media and the immediacy of everybody being able to give their opinion, so many people let their talking do the talking. Mm -hmm. And I've just always believed, let your works do the talking. Yeah, we've, uh, we've talked quite a bit on here about um, things like action speaking louder than words, for sure. Uh, one thing my dad always used to tell me was, um, hard work always pays off. If you're, you know, I, he would put it in a way of, if you are doing what you're supposed to be doing, things will work out in the end, right? Instead of looking for, for that pat on the back or trying to put yourself out there, uh, as far as being in front and so on, the people that know will recognize hard work and dedication and loyalty. Uh, without you having to tell them that? Well, I really believe that. I, I do understand you've got to be strategic about that. And if you live your whole life under the rock, you know, maybe nobody will ever see it. But, but at the same time, just think that, that that's a really important virtue. And what we all have to remember, too, is it doesn't happen on our time. It happens on its time. And I think that's what sometimes can be frustrating because you can be working really hard and doing all the right things. And it doesn't happen when you want it to happen. And when I think back on my career, most things don't happen when you want it to happen. It happens when it's ready to happen. And that's maybe that comes with experience and time that you just get a maturity to understand that better. Because I can think back to early on in my career, I was the right hand of Debbie Yao. I go to Maryland. You start to actually read and believe your press clippings. And you think that you're ready to be an athletics director. And I remember the first couple of times that I put my name in for, and you didn't hear from anybody. And I'm like, wow, I think I can be, but the people that mattered didn't think because it wasn't my time. And then I get that opportunity under coach Alvarez. And as soon as I was named deputy athletics director at one, two, three months later, all these search firms start calling me. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm the same guy I was two months ago, but <laughs> coach Alvarez anointed me. Right. But mm -hmm. That's when it just hit me. It doesn't happen on my time. It happens on its time. And usually that's the right time. Correct. You have to it, believe it is, right? Yeah. You just have to believe it is. So I, I think with the role that you have, um, developing that, that patience and understanding um, that timing isn't perfect is, you know, important. There's certainly patience that you need to exhibit in your role, but I think, uh, one thing that Iowa State fans have always appreciated about you is um, the sense of urgency, I think, that you brought to the department that I don't know that we all necessarily felt was there before. 
Uh, so how how did how did you balance that that patience with that 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 eagerness? I guess. Well, that's a great question, and I would say a couple things. And I haven't, I didn't know you were going to ask me that. So this is this is raw, right? So the first part was going back to being a builder, not a maintainer. That fueled that opportunity. I felt like when I arrived at Iowa State, a lot of fans gave me instant credibility because of my ties through Coach McCarney, through Coach Alvarez, to Wisconsin. Wisconsin had a little bit of the blueprint that Iowa Staters wanted because Wisconsin hadn't always been good. And so people looked to you to say, it just felt like the people here were so eager to want to have success, but they wanted somebody to show them how to do it. And, and I just, <laughs> yeah. I felt that, and yeah. I, I don't mean that in an egotistical way. It just, that it just, that was kind of this feeling that there were going back to what I said, 17 years later, things haven't changed. The people here are really good people. Mm-hmm. They are They're They value everything we just talked about, about a hard day's work and doing the right thing and head down and working really hard and letting your work do, you know, that's, that's agriculture. That, that's Iowa. That's the Iowa state way. But I felt like they needed someone to say, we can do this. And it felt a little bit like people here and it's that modesty of the Midwest. I don't want to say what we're going to try to do because what if we can't do it? And I've always just been one, maybe because I was a cross country track athlete, what you put into it, you got out of it. And so it just was, we're going to try to do this. And if we fail, we fail, but that's where we're going and we're going to try to do it. And so I felt like this community was very receptive to that. And that worked for me as well. But I'd also share, and I'm going to look back here and grab a book real quick. But we didn't do this right away. But this book, Strength Finders. Sure. Sure. I've, I've done I, that a few times. Yeah. I'm married to a woman that came through student affairs. And so, you know, hers was Myers Briggs. And I always joke and say, don't date somebody that's doing Myers-Briggs because it's not a fair game. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking to me about touchy, feely, you're a TEI, whatever it all is. Yes. It just, I felt like she had a leg up on me, right? This is Myers-Briggs for business, right? But the, the, the whole principle of this was don't work on what you're good at, work on what you're, or don't work on what you're bad at, work on what you're good at because that, that way you'll become great. If you only work on what you're bad at, you'll probably only get to good or average. So figure out what you're really good at and then make it shine. So when I took this for the first time, it was like eye-opening because it was like looking in the mirror and acknowledging who you are. Mm-hmm. Because what came out of here are my traits. And I'll just read the five. Yeah, I was going to ask what your top five are. I'm, I'm, ex- yeah, I'm curious. I'd, Activator, which I would argue that, and some of my colleagues would say all five of mine might be activation, (laughs) but but activator, achiever, competitor, strategic. And then the one that really bothered me, but it was, I needed to hear it was significance. Huh? Because if you read significance, you'd go, oh my gosh, that person must be a jerk, you know? And but it was like looking in the mirror and going, okay, I, significant means I got to matter. Yeah. And so I think back to, 
because I, I talk about this a lot in classes to students. And in my day, Little League didn't come with uniforms and traveling teams and games and out of state. And Little League for me was pedal your bike up to the park. And you had a t-shirt that your mom ironed on the logo. I was the twins, my first team ever. And you had no coaches. And so you self-coached. So I remember like our first team really when I was on it as a 10, 11 year old. And I'd always say, why did I bat first and play shortstop? Okay. Because I put myself at shortstop because <laughs> I took charge because I had to be significant. And that's not a bad trade. It's just, a, it's, it's accepting who you are. Right. And so those, that book really helped me understand like my activation going back to your real question, which was my sense of urgency is it's in everything I do. I just, I have zero patience for lack of urgency. I hate committees. My, my, uh, my rule of thumb is people that like being on committees are people that don't like to make decisions themselves. So they try to hide. They can't. And so I've always never wanted to be on committees because I hated it. Mm-hmm. And now I find myself on the men's basketball committee and you go, well, what? that doesn't make sense, Jamie. <laughs> and but I come back to this and say, if you want me on the basketball committee, then you're getting Jamie Pollard, like it or not. Right. I don't think I'm always right, but you're going to know what I think. And Sometimes I didn't want to be on committees because I felt like people didn't like having somebody that wanted to activate stuff like that. And what I've learned is, yeah, quite frankly, a lot of people like having people like that on a committee because it helps things get done. So back to your question, though, Tim, is it would have been hard if this community wasn't receptive Mm -hmm. to moving things forward. And it would have been hard if we were an institution that required all kinds of committees to get things done. We've always joked we could come up with an idea in the morning at Iowa State and implement it in the afternoon because we don't have a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, to, you know, to some that are here that have never been anywhere else, they probably do think we have bureaucracy. I'd say go work at the University of Wisconsin and you'll see bureaucracy. <laughs> so, um, so the community was receptive. And that's who I was. And I think that those two things have blended together in a way that have allowed Iowa State to benefit from all of that. So long-winded answer. I'm never short, but no, that, that, that backdrop was I think was important. Yeah, that was that was great. Activator, achiever, competition, strategic, and significance. Uh, those first four absolutely do not surprise me whatsoever. I think I probably could have guessed that myself. Um, but I, I think to your point, the the city of Ames and the University of Iowa State, I think uh, between the fan base and and just the culture, I think uh, you had so many people believing because, you know, we had we had been on the edge of, of greatness. Right. We, we had uh, the, the 2000 men's basketball team. We had the 2000 men's football team. We, we felt like we were that there was so close to so many things that. I think you had so many people saying, why not us? Why not us? Right. I think what happened at that time period, you know, and I wasn't here, so you hate to judge back then, but what did it would appear? Those years, 2000, there were some great athletic successes in that moment. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the best years ever. But the foundation wasn't in place to sustain it. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what we spent time, Johnny Orr used to always say, don't win too early, right? Because then anybody will think, you know, they'll think you can, anybody can do it, right? But I think what we did a really good job of is laying out the blueprint of where we wanted to go, but then we had a plan of how to get it set up. And if you go back and look, a lot of the early finance was spent on building out the facilities to prepare for the day that we have 60,000 people so that we could capitalize on that. Yeah. I mean, you really came on at a time when the arms race, the facilities arms race was really kind of picking up steam. Um, Certainly there were, you had the blue bloods that had a lot of nice things, but you really started to see in the early two thousands, really everyone else feel like that's going to what's going to make people competitive is doing that. And so, um, you know, there's certainly, I wouldn't call it an overall reticence, but I think people were probably a little bit more conservative on what that means to spend money um, at Iowa state to, to do those things. But um, to your point, I mean, you have to do those things foundationally. Well, you do. And I remember going to the board of regents and Tom Witoski, the investigative reporter for the register, the headlines the next morning was Iowa state's big gamble because we laid out this plan for $150 million of facility improvements. Well, we're, we're now topping 300 million. So it wasn't even 150, you know, it's double that and some. And if we get the entertainment district done, it, it will start pushing close to a billion dollars worth of facility improvements. So there's, it's, um, it's fascinating when you look back. It's, um, funny that you had mentioned the entertainment district because at the beginning here when you said that you're a builder and not a maintainer some would say 17 years that's maintaining it but you've built ever since you've been here and you have even bigger plans now i drove by the other day saw the the bridge the pedestrian bridge is is getting close to finished what what's that project look like um for the future now well the bridge was parcel into the entertainment district you know, the bridge was needed to move the R. We needed to move the RVs out of where they were for operational reasons, but also long-term strategic reasons. But you couldn't put them. When you started to look where you could put them, we have all that wonderful land to the east that you can't build on, but you can park on. Mm-hmm. And so it just felt like we could offload the RVs over there. But to do that, you had to find a way to get there. So the bridge came into play, and the bridge also. Had a, has a campus symbolism that probably a lot of people outside of athletics have a better appreciation for than our athletic fans. It's going to be a gateway entrance to campus. You're going to drive yeah. under that bridge and feel like I've arrived, right? You're, it's just a passageway, but it's going to functionally offload all those people out to the new RV park, which the pads got poured today. So we're making progress out there too. But by doing that, then that allowed us to kind of open up our, our mind to, well, what could be then in that space where the RVs were. At the same time, if you drove around to the north of Sheeman and west of CY Stevens, all that area is torn up because we're adding 400 new parking spaces there. Again, offloading parking from that main area so that when we're able to get into that space, we're not diminishing parking. We're actually going to make parking you know, may- be maintained. So you had to add in order to be able to subtract. And, and so that's the bridge. The parking is all part of 
getting the area set up for the entertainment district. And then the entertainment district in and of itself is an opportunity to create new revenues for Iowa State University to allow us to be able to, as, as we move forward as a school, in a time when there's going to be less students going to college because of the demographics back in the recession in 2008, people had less babies. So there's going to be a huge enrollment drop for all schools around the country. So what are you doing to position yourself to be able to attract? You've got to do a better job of getting a better percentage of the students that are going to be available. And as a campus, we felt like we didn't have the amenities that a lot of other towns have. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of it. And then we have this huge financial albatross around the university's neck called CY Stevens and Sheeman and those parking lots that were wonderful 50 years ago, but have not had any resources put into them. Mm-hmm. And so here we are 50 years later where they're decaying and broken down and, and there was no real hope of how you're ever going to reinvest in those facilities. So the entertainment district gives us hope to be able to do that. And then selfishly in athletics, a big part of our success has been tied to the climate we've created in and around athletic events led by tailgating. Mm -hmm. And if we just think people are always just going to come pop up a tent behind their car, you know, we're going to, we're going to age out. Young people today don't always want to do all the work to load it up. They want to have the bar and the rooftop and the, They want to have it right there accessible to them. And so that's the other part of this is how do we bring all of that space forward to contemporary times and really create like a vibrant area that people go, wow, this is, you know, I want to be there. Yeah. I think when those plans were, were shown and, and, and you had um, announced those, I think it kind of fits into what you were talking about a few minutes ago, as far as being significant and being confident that, that was the right plan. And I think a lot of people would be afraid to take on that endeavor. Um, I, I think it looked great. I mean, I, I'm one man's opinion, obviously, but it was a bold vision, I think, for the future that 10, 15 years ago, I don't think Iowa State community itself would ever think would be possible. Well, what's really fascinating, Chris, and we've done a, I've done more presentations on that project than can probably even count. I can but, imagine. But one of them is we were successful in finding an old footage from the faculty senate meeting 60 years ago when President Hilton stood at a faculty meeting and talked about his vision for the Iowa State Center, Hilton, Sheeman, the football stadium. And then it showed him standing out in the swampland that's now, you know, parking lot C1. And you just look at that and go, people probably thought he was certifiably nuts. (laughs) How he pulled it off, I have no idea. But 50 years ago, when C.Y. Stevens and Sheeman and Hilton came out of the ground, nobody in not just in this state, but in the Midwest had facilities like that. Mm-hmm. And this community benefited so much from that. But 50 years later, almost every community in, in America, let alone the Midwest, has kind of passed us by because they all got on board, but got on board with shiny new buildings. And now 
Now we're not front and center. We're not top of mind because our facilities are old, outdated. And so we have to, we have to reimagine what the future could hold. Yeah. It, it's interesting that, that you talk about that. You know, my, my folks that went to Iowa state back in the, in the sixties and seventies, he would tell me stories about, about Clyde Williams and basketball, the armory and, and all of those things that, that I took for granted as a student at my time there, that, that these facilities that, uh, you know, seemed, uh, you know, storied in, in certain ways growing up with, with Hilton magic and all of that, but that it was really only a generation removed, but at the same time, uh, that's kind of the pace that, that college athletics moves at is, is kind of a, a, you know, a generation at a time as, as in terms of facilities. Well, it's interesting to use the word generation because I've said this many a time is true leadership is being willing to make some decisions that the person making the decision may never get to benefit from. Mm -hmm. And I give that in the context of there was a day, and it's funny to say this today because you guys are going to laugh because the example I use, but you know, there was a day Nebraska football existed before Coach Devaney, <laughs> right? And I, I, I don't, I don't believe you. Well, and I'm, well, you don't have to believe me because unfortunately they're they're experiencing it now. Yeah, right? Absolutely, but, no, that's true. But for a while there, you know, all we ever heard about was their sellout streak and their their long history of being so good. And well, it's generational, right? what coach Devaney did was generational changing. Mm -hmm. Now they're kind of moving on to another generation and it hasn't been quite as successful. Right. But I've always thought about at Iowa state is I hope there's some day that people will look back and go, well, I don't remember Iowa state not being very good. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that, that kids today, you know, if you were a college student today, all you know is Matt Campbell had us in the, you know, the, the um, uh, Fiesta Bowl, and we won that, and we've been pretty close to conference championships the last two years. And those that went to school, when you guys went to school, that wasn't the case. Yeah, right? It was absolutely. vastly yeah. different back then, and you yearned for a day like we're having today. And it's yeah, generation. The, the conversation that I have just with my college-age student right now is the exact same thing. I mean, she has no concept of – of, of the lean, lean years that we had when I was there at right. the end of the Jim Walden, the beginning of the Dan McCarney years, and, and even the facilities. I mean, Jack Trice is, is exponentially different than what it was when I went there. I can remember tailgating outside the south entrance, and it was nothing but grass. There was no concrete there. Yeah. Right. Uh, so uh, now, I mean, it's it's – the tailgating and the parking around there is just so much better. And so amazing that it's hard for me to explain that to her. Oh no, I used to tailgate over here where the really, <laughs> really high donors park. Now I used yeah. to tailgate here as a student. They'd let students tailgate right here. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we could walk right in and find a seat. Right. Yeah. 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 And absolutely. the student section was way up high, way, yeah. way up high. Yeah. So Yeah. So, uh, you know, you mentioned generations, you mentioned a little bit earlier, though, Johnny or, um, you know, what I think one thing that Iowa State 
as a fan base has is even though we don't have uh, so many great memories in the past, we do have uh, a fondness for people like Coach Orr, uh, like Coach McCarney. Um, we do have kind of a, a fondness for for nostalgia, right? So how how have you connected the past, the time before you were there, and and uh, with the what you've done over the last 17 years. Cause I think there's been a, a, a good, a good use of that. Well, I appreciate you were saying that. And, and what I would say is I feel our, our people have connected to the people of the past. We may not have the record books to show national championships and conference championships and final fours that some programs have. But many of those programs look at our program and go, you have the same fan base that we have. How are you doing it? Mm -hmm. There are programs in our league that talk to me all the time about how do you get these people to do what they do? You go to bowl games, you fill the stadiums, and yet we don't have the record books behind it all. And I think it just goes back to the people. And so, you know, Coach Orr, barely has a winning record mm -hmm. yet he's revered as much as probably Mike Krzyzewski would be revered at Duke. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. And, and, and we were that close to getting Mike at the time too. Yeah, so. Yeah. Probably, bad, <laughs> well, probably bad example. But, yeah. <laughs> but you could say the same about Dan McCartney, right? It was um, people appreciate over time what Dan McCartney really meant to this program. And, you know, unfortunately for Dan, I've described it. You know, he was, a, at least in my time, he was the leadoff runner on the relay. Yeah. And he ran, you know, he tied up down the home stretch, but he did not leave anything on the track. He gave you everything and anything he had. But at the end, the gas tank was just empty. It yeah. was empty. And there wasn't anything that Jamie Pollard or Dan McCartney could do to put any more gas in that tank. And it was just time to give the baton to somebody else, right? But mm -hmm. our fans quickly gravitated away from, well, don't be, don't judge him by his career record. Judge him by who he was as a person and what he did for this place. And, and I've said this many a time, the most important decision that was probably ever made in the history of Iowa State athletics was made by Gene Smith. Gene Smith opted to keep Dan McCartney after the first five years. Had Gene Smith done what every other AD in the country probably would have done, which was make another change, we might have kept repeating that cycle over and over and over and over. But he gave Dan an opportunity to, to basically move to the next step on the rung, even though his record didn't warrant it. And that decision, most people probably can't even fully appreciate it. But that decision started in motion what we're now experiencing today. And I'm not certain if Gene didn't have the foresight to do that, we would be where we are today. And most people, that might be the first time anybody's ever verbalized that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, we had Coach Mack. We were lucky enough to have him on the pod uh, a while back. And that man still bleeds cardinal and gold. He still cares an absolute ton for... Uh, the university, w what really stuck out to me was how much he absolutely still loves those players to this day. He, he, you know, he, and they love him. Right. And like, and 
he had so many specific, like think about the number of games that man has coached. And he had so many specific memories of so many specific people. Uh, it's incredible. And I think, again, that speaks to uh, the approach you have to have at a culture in Ames uh, at Iowa state. That is maybe a little bit different than a tack that you would take somewhere else. Well, I, I would agree. And again, you're using some good words here, but culture, I get asked often, like, what are you most proud of in your 17 years? And it'd be real easy to say facilities or this coach or that coach. But what I would say is the culture that, not that we've created, but the culture that we've developed from the culture we inherited. Because the culture we inherited was really a good culture. It just needed, it needed its own modernization. And that we've been able to build and maintain a culture that really represents the people of this state and the people that go to Iowa State. And that's really important to me that we're able to continue to maintain that going forward because it gets really hard when you start to have success. And you know, one of the things that both TJ and I got to experience in the NCAA tournament was going home to Wisconsin and you know, beating the Badgers. And what was fascinating for me there are a lot of people that were at that game that don't remember the Badgers ever being bad. Like mm -hmm. when I was a kid <laughs> growing up and they were not rude to us, but they were dismissive to us almost like, well, you guys have had a great year. You know, we're just sorry. It's going to end here, so to speak. Right. And so it was so much fun kind of putting them in their place. <laughs> and, and, but I say that because I hope we never get to that spot as a fan base. That And it's hard and we may, it might be unavoidable, but I just hope we never get to a spot where we forget who we really are. Because mm -hmm. if we do, we lose a little of our secret sauce. Because then we, then we become just like everybody else. And if we're just like everybody else, we lose. I, the one word that has kind of come into my head since we, in this conversation, when you talk about the fan base and, and remembering Johnny Orr and, and the, the reservations that we have for those people is gratefulness. I think uh, this fan base is very grateful for what those people have given us when, when Johnny leaves Michigan to come to Iowa state, when uh, um, Matt Campbell continues to be uh, loyal to, to Iowa state, when, uh, TJ wants to come home because this is where he wants to be. We are grateful for that. And I think that in turn keeps the fan base wanting to support it. Uh, the, the trip to Las Vegas this last fall was absolutely insane with the <laughs> amount of Iowa state people that were there. Me, you know, my wife and I included, but um, I, it's just something I think that we, and I think we take a little pride in it, right? Oh, we're going to Memphis. You guys haven't had, you haven't, you haven't had us there yet. Well, you better, you know, you better <laughs> stock up. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, Kansas city and, and the power and light district, things like that. I think it's almost like a badge of honor for us at this point. I would agree. And, it, and it's, that's what we're, one of the things we're known for nationally in the circles that I function as a professional, that our fan base, that's the first thing people think of. Yeah, I, I hope we always continue to travel well. I, I, I appreciate that word gratitude too, Chris. You know, I, I think of a, a coach like like uh, Coach Fennelly, who has been loyal 
for so long to the university, over 20 years at the university, when he took over, we had like, I don't know, like two winning seasons in the last five or something like that. He only had five players on, on the roster when he took over uh, the success that he's had. But one of those guys where you've been able to find a balance of, of, you know, you know, fresh blood to, to, to the programs to, to bring new life to the university while still ma- being able to maintain uh, someone like that. Who's just, you know, a stalwart that helps kind of bridge that gap between uh, the Iowa state before and the Iowa state now. What Bill Fenley has done at Iowa state women's basketball is unprecedented. It's phenomenal. And, and we, to get word together in Phoenix last week and, you know, both of us, he's a little older than me, but we're both getting to that age where you start to look over the crest and say, you know, and I keep telling him, you can't retire before me. There's no way. <laughs> so I keep telling him he made me the Gary Bear, Blair promise. Gary Blair retired at A&M this past year at the age of 78. Bill's 65. So I said, Bill, he goes, I'm not coaching 13 more years. I said, I'm not asking you to coach 13 more years, but at least have your eye on 10. because because I don't want to have to be in a position to replace you because that may be the hardest job anybody will ever have to undertake is to replace Bill Fenley. Yeah. I mean, talk about a a coach like coach Devaney at, at, at Nebraska. I mean, he's that guy whose name when he's all said and done here should be on every single, uh, building memorial whatever uh at at iowa state certainly for for what he's done for the program i uh, breaking news (laughs) (laughs) if it's up to me there will be a statue of bill fenley before you know it's all said and done oh i I I think there's a time and place for that i don't think you should really be putting those up while you're still employed just Mm -hmm. because things happen but there is so at a, least another 10 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. That's why I said, if it's up to me, right. If he lasts, if he goes 10 more years, safe to say, I don't think I'll be doing this. at 67. I, I would not take the over on that. Oh uh, yeah. That was great. Jamie, what uh, things have just changed so much. And then we had the pandemic and, and, and navigating that. 2022 Jamie Pollard, what's he go back and tell 2012 Jamie that he should know? Wow. That's, that's a good a question. Deep Chris. question Chris. <laughs> it's my one. <laughs> well, what he would tell him, first of all, is you're going to have a heart attack. So be ready for that. <laughs> okay. You know, let me, yeah. let me interrupt you real quick. I, 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 I I'm reminiscent to say, I hope your health is good. I know that you had uh, a, a scare there in December, so I hope everything is going okay. Well, I'm I'm trying to, you know, I've I've said to people, I'm trying to have every ailment known to mankind, and I wish I wasn't, but I feel like that's what's happening. But I'm I'm in I'm in a good spot right now, so that's good. good. But thank you for that's asking, good. Chris. I guess what I probably would start with is don't take yourself so serious. Is make sure that you're spending time for and into others that it gets lonely. Let me just say that it gets lonely being AD and not because you're not around people, but it gets really hard in this job to have any depth 
in a lot of relationships because you get spread so thin and so wide. And I would tell Jamie of 2012 is to slow down and make sure that you invest into some relationships because um, if there's one thing I regret in my tenure is I don't feel, to, to have a friend, you gotta be a friend. And I don't feel like I've been a great friend to people that I would have wanted to have been a friend to. And it's because you get so caught up in the next. And in this business, there's just always something coming at me and go back to this silly book and the need to be competitive and strategic and achieving. And it's like a treadmill that you just can't get off. And sometimes you got to get off the treadmill and just stop for a moment and pour into those people. And I've done a bad job of that. I think with a job like yours, there's not really any type of off season. There's not a down season. There's, there's, you're, you're moving forward. You're, you're constantly going. Um, uh, and the speed at which everything changes is um, just faster and faster by the moment, I think. Um, so I, I think that's, that's, wise advice to give yourself i think that's wise advice i mean that's why we do this podcast chris and i always like to say that we have all the answers which is absolutely not true we just let people a whole lot smarter than us come on the podcast and tell everyone what what the real answer is um you know you you got a chance uh to watch your kids participate in college athletics um what is that you know you participated in college athletics as an athlete but on the administrative side, you have a whole other kind of take on all of that. Um, so I'm sure you brought kind of a, a unique perspective to that. What was that like to, to watch your kids uh, be student athletes? Well, one, it's been absolutely awesome because it's something that we've been able to share and family is really important to me. And that's one part, you know, asking Jamie Pollard in 2012, I didn't shortchange family. So that part, or at least immediate family. And so that part I feel good about, but a lot of it was because I had three runners and I had a golfer. And so they were things that I really enjoyed being part of. And, and so it's been, that's probably been the best part of um, when I think back on that is, you know, when I talk to recruits, I always say, I can talk to you not only as a AD, but I can talk to you as a dad because I've had you know, a son that's still competing for Iowa State. So I, he gives me some unfiltered feedback sometimes. <laughs> uh, what we may think administratively we're doing right. And he'll, he'll tell me if we're not. But I also have been able to, you know, I've had a daughter at Nebraska as a walk-on. And so, you know, Thomas was a scholarship athlete. So I got to see a scholarship athlete's view, but I also got to see a walk-on student athlete's view. Then I've had a daughter that competed at division three, you know, that's what I did. So, so I got to see that world. And then I had a son that physically, unfortunately couldn't compete. And so I got to see that. And so all their walks of life have helped me better appreciate the differences and how important coaches are to student athlete experience. 
and how important the decisions we make as administrators impact their student athlete experience. I told, um, I was on a, uh, actually a podcast yesterday for a track and field company. And they were asking me about Thomas. And I said, well, one of the things that, two things that I gleaned from Thomas's time here, because of his training, there's no way he could do an internship or study abroad. Mm -hmm. But we have a long history in our track program of having Africans on our team. And so what he would say is he got to study abroad with his teammates because they, they cook dinners together. We've had his teammates out to the house, out to the lake. And so the value of having those international students, because there are some athletic programs that don't want any international students in their athletics program because they feel all that money should go towards domestic students. And I'd argue that having those international students not only made our teams better, but they made our student athletes more well-rounded. Okay. That was one. Number two is, and probably my most proudest moment, you know, or one of my more prouder moments as a Cyclone AD dad was Thomas getting to represent Team USA in Poland. Well, he got to do that because Iowa State pays for our student athletes to go compete in the U.S. championships. And he won the U.S. championship, which allowed him to go to Poland. And so when I think of our putting resources towards our young men and women to be able to go try out for an Olympic team or try out for a world team, whether they're a wrestler or a tennis athlete or track and field. That's something our athletic department takes great pride in doing. And we even do it for international athletes. We'll send the Africans home to compete in the Kenyan Olympic trials. And some people would say, why are you doing that? And what I would tell you is through a dad's eyes, it was so cool. So why wouldn't we do that? So there's moments like that where my daughter at at Nebraska telling me, what does it feel like when the walk-ons don't get access to COVID testing? Okay. Yeah. And she's sick. Right. And that struck a chord because all our athletes had access to COVID testing. I didn't care if you were Brock Purdy or somebody on one of our teams. I don't even know who you are. You deserve that right. And she didn't get that right at Nebraska because they said, well, we're only going to do it for scholarship athletes. So it was, you get moments mm-hmm. like that, that help you shape what you do. Right. Um, and then having a division three athlete where they're, they're excited to get a van and stay overnight. <laughs> and on our team, you know, wonder why they're flying commercial instead of charter. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, uh, I- it's a unique perspective. Uh, the position that you're in. So I would imagine other than, than, than those things you've talked about with this new, and I I'm remnant, I'm hesitant to call it NIL because it's not exactly being paid for that. The, the, the position that you're in as an AD and on that side of it, and then seeing that student athlete as a parent's side of it as well. Right. Well, you know, part of it is that area right now is just so, um, out of control because there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of posturing at the end of the day, NIL in and of itself as originally kind of constituted, isn't going to hurt college athletics. Mm -hmm. Cost of attendance didn't having academic bonuses. I can think of all the things that were going to kill college athletics and they didn't. Right. 
and NIL in and of itself, allowing our student athletes to have the same opportunity that a student on campus does is not wrong. It's the right thing to do. Shame on us that we didn't do that earlier, but that could have been administered in a way had the court systems allowed us to do it. And had we been bold enough as an association to do it, we could have maybe prevented the train wreck we're now going to have. There is a difference between NIL and pay for play. Mm-hmm. And NIL is now being paraded as pay for play. And if we think people thought college athletics exploited student athletes, what we're about to witness over the next couple of years is going to be like something we've never seen because there are students that have gone to schools under the promise that they're going to get paid a whole bunch of money. And I'm pretty confident within two years, they're going to find out that those were promises made and promises broken because the money just will not sustain it. Now that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that's an absolute. There are some that got contracts and I still disagree with those, but when someone tells me, well, I didn't sign anything because they want to say that because they think that there's a rule that says they couldn't sign anything. And I'm thinking to myself, you're a fool for not signing anything because signing something may be the only way you'll ever get it. Mm-hmm. Right. But we've just, it's, it's left the ramp, so to speak. And that's not good for the holistic experience that we provide all these 99% of our other student athletes. And so I can go in there as a father and, you know, I know what Brock Purdy made and I know what others made that were under the guise of intended NIL. And I also know what some schools are doing for young men that have no business being paid that kind of money. And that's not sustainable and not healthy long-term for college athletics. Do you think because you have such an affinity for a love for the quote unquote non-revenue sports that maybe you bring a, a unique perspective that maybe some people are are, are missing out on this? Because the vast majority of our student athletes across the country aren't aren't household names, aren't people that are going to to have uh, the same opportunities like this. Well, it also is fueled by the world we now live in that we'll never get back in the barn, so to speak, is the ability for anybody and everybody to have an opinion about something and share it. And so I, and then the media has tried to combat that by what I call clickbait stories. Mm -hmm. And so we gravitate, we gravitate to the extreme. So we spend all our time talking about the 1% and not the 99%. And we start to believe because it just keeps coming at you because of the power of social media that you start to feel like the 1% is the 99% and that the 99% is the 1%. It was so therapeutic for me last week to be in Phoenix with my big 12 colleagues, football, basketball, ADs, and all share the same concerns, disdain, understandings. Yet we all could laugh at each other because we all had stories about what we thought the other school was doing. (laughs) (laughs) And so 
that gave me some comfort mm -hmm. and calmness that we're not in this alone. I also take great comfort that we have a great culture and we have several coaches, especially the two that are right now in the crosshairs of this issue, Coach Campbell and Coach Otzelberger, that see the world the right way. Mm -hmm. And what we've talked about amongst ourselves is, yeah, we could try to go play that game of throwing money around and making promises that we know we're going to break, but we wouldn't be very good at it because that's not who we are. So we would lose even if we did that way. So why don't we bet on ourselves and not throw the money around and be trustworthy and count on the fact that we're going to bet on how we do things. And if we find out two years from now that that's just not a viable pathway, then it won't be too late to change. It won't be. But I have better confidence that we can win that game better than we can win a game that we don't even really believe is the right game to be playing. I mean, it goes right back to your strengths-based uh, organization uh, mentality that you're going to focus on what you're good at. Right. Right. Absolutely. No, I, I think that's a, that's a great perspective to have. And I think, I think the entire world of, of, of college athletics media could all stand to take a big, deep breath at the moment. Right. Well, I would liken what we're going through in some ways back to how we all went through COVID. And I still remember Matt Campbell, that first meeting we went to and coaches were worried about a whole bunch of stuff that they didn't need to be worried about. Matt Campbell was our, he wasn't worrying about his summer camp income and spring recruiting. He was already thinking about how are we going to be prepared when we come back in August? And I would argue that we were more prepared in all our teams. Hence why we went and won the Fiesta Bowl that year, because we didn't get caught up in all this meaningless drama. Mm -hmm. We were able to pull ourselves up and look further down the road. I'd also argue we said way back when in COVID that those that got through that era would come out of it better and more equipped to be successful sooner. We're having our best year ever. We're 20th in the director's cup. We're in the top half of the big 12. We won the Cy Hawk series. We've had incredible success this year. Two sweet 16s, a national runner up top nine, top 10 women's team in cross country. And people go, how are you having all that success? And I like, I, I truly believe in my heart of hearts. It's because that success started during COVID because we had a blueprint that didn't pan. Yeah. As Tim said, you relied on what you were good at. Um, and to take a, a line from, from coach Campbell's press conference last year that he took a lot of heat for was um, he wanted his team to be the best version of themselves. And I think that that extrapolates out to the entire university uh, athletics and, and the school. I think that that's their goal is to, to, to make good men, uh, young men and, and young women with good quality and good character. And those other things will all take care of itself. Well, go back to where we started. Let your works do the talking, not your talks doing the talking. If you can become the best version of yourself, your works will get you what you deserve. 
And if what you deserve is to be the big 12 champions and the Fiesta Bowl champions, then you'll get it. And that's what we got. And this past year, if your works aren't what is necessary to go to the you know, college football playoff, then you won't. And I think people were taken back when Matt said, well, my goal isn't to be in the college football playoff. My goal is to be the best version of ourselves. And if that gets us there, great. But if it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, no, I yeah. think that's that's a that's kind of a great bookend to this this conversation. Chris, did you have any other questions that that you had on your list that you wanted? No, I, I I just uh, very appreciative uh, of your time, Jamie. Um, I mean, uh, other than getting a special link that I can order my parking pass through instead of the website <laughs> during football season, so I'm not constantly refreshing my screen. Be, uh, if you want to slip me that, that would be great. Um, and Tim and I, at the end of every conversation we have with somebody cyclone related, we demand that there be a cyclone call-in show, just like sound off for Iowa. Time. And we know two hosts that would be happy to do it. So, <laughs> uh, but thank you very much, Jamie. It, it, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you. And again, thank you for the very kind letter to my boys uh, several years ago. Well, you don't know this, Chris, but your boys were the first. Yes. Do you know how the do you know how the kids captain started? I do not. So my son James was lifetime cancer survivor. He was um, in the hospital, coming out of the hospital, and Coach Rhodes came over to see me, and I can still hear him with that deep voice. <laughs> and he said, "Jamie, I want James to be the captain this week with Austin Arnod." And I said, "Well, Paul, that's great, but." No, he can't be because I'm the athletics director. I feel like that's a conflict of interest. And he looked at me and he said, Jamie, no athletics director is going to decide who my captains are. (laughs) (laughs) So James walked out of the tunnel. I mean, he actually was one of the captains and went down on the field and they flipped the coin. And the impact that had on him and our family was so cool that I came back and I said to our staff, we got to create something for kids to get to experience this. This somebody's got to be able to figure this out. And we worked with Blank Children's Hospital, yep. and they created this program. And your kids got to be the first ones to do it. Yeah, so, their their nurse was right on top of of nominating them. And yep. uh, it's an the boys, awesome thing. It, it was it was it was truly amazing. Uh, and then they participated in, in Matt Campbell's Victory Day for three or four years in a row. So. That's awesome. Uh, it's just been Iowa State has done a lot for my family. So uh, my wife and I graduates. Caitlin graduates on Saturday. Uh, she's again a little a little salty that she isn't going to graduate in Jack Trice like they did the last two years. <laughs> I've had to hear that, Jamie. Just so you know. Uh, but every time you look at that new sod, right? Yeah, I'll tell her why. That's yeah, why. Right? Exactly. Well, That's why. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Exactly. Well, uh, Jamie, we do want to give you a chance. Is, is there anything else you kind of want to mention, bring up, plug anything else like that before we let you go? No, I, I just think it goes back to you two represent exactly what Cyclone Nation is all about. And Chris, you know, you said it in the beginning. You, know, you emailed me. I didn't know what I was signing up for, but that's the, cy- that's the Cyclone way, right? We do things for each other. 
And so I appreciate what you guys are doing and for having me on and for having other Cyclones, Dan McCarney and whom else you've had on. That's awesome. So thank you for doing your part to help promote what is a, a great, great community. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh, boy, I don't think there's really anything else I can say. So I'm going to just go ahead and wrap this up. Mention that once again, you have been listening to Old Man Strength, a podcast of the Tailgate Society. Please check out the Tailgate Society, thetailgatesociety.com. Chris, we have a new website that you would like to, to mention. Yeah, uh, give me one second and I will bring it up. <laughs> uh, it's pinned to our to our Twitter feed at the top as well. So, All right, so yeah. go ahead and check us out at strength underscore old on Twitter. Chris is SciGrad, SciDad. I am a Twitter quitter um, for mental health sanity reasons um <laughs> so uh please go ahead and check us out as well as all the other great content at the tailgate society and with that we will see you guys next time i don't want to get on the bandwagon i'll burn that wagon down and join the band traveling troubadours terrorizing street corners just to try to get some supper in our hands now I waited all my life to get this off my chest Green buddy murder until someone understands That it ain't about the money, the drugs, or the women I make this noise just because I can And we'll all join in To that original sin